Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the mini break. Your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Tuesday, February 8th. It's going to be a two-mini-break Tuesday for all of you listeners. As on this show, I want to break down last week's action that happened on the ATP Tour. We had three events going on simultaneously. The action in Pune, India, Montpellier, France, and of course over in Cordoba as well. I want to talk about all three of those events. Talk about Jao Sosa's dramatic comeback from injury back into the winner's circle for the first time since 2018 on the ATP Tour was just a fantastic three-set final between he and Emil Roussevori, of course, over in Montpellier. We saw an upset as Sasha Bublik captures the first ATP title in his career in a battle of the Sashas against Sasha Zverev. I want to talk about what allowed Bublik to earn that upset victory, what was also Another disappointing performance for Alex Zverev in that final, of course, over in Cordoba. I mean, what a week for Albert Ramos Vinoles. Whenever you get to the clay court portion of the season, you know he's going to put forward some impressive results. It was an impressive run for him to the title as he knocks out first-time ATP finalist Alejandro Tabilo in the final action over in Cordoba. Again, I want to break down those three events. I know we didn't spend much time talking about them last week, so I want to play catch-up for for all of you listeners here on today's show, of course, on our second podcast today, it's going to be a, an edition of Tennis Point Tuesday. Haven't been able to do that in far too long. Very excited to talk with my buddy Nate Walrith about the latest and greatest things happening at Tennis Point, as well as set the scene of the action happening this week on both the ATP and WTA tours for all of you listeners. So again, it's going to be a two mini break Tuesday here at Crack Rackets. Of course, why are we able to do that? It's because of the support we get from all of you listeners, from our Crack Rackets Patreon family, and of course, because of the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point. All of you listeners know the deal. If you need anything from an equipment standpoint to generate the best performance for yourself out on court. The place to turn to is our friends at Tennis Point. They've got all of the best equipment at all of the best prices. You go to tennis-point.com right now. Use our promo code CR15. You'll get 15% off all sale items, a free two-day shipping on all items exceeding $75. Excuse me, all uh purchases exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Tennis-Point, symbol not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With that said, let's get into it and talk about the action that happened last week on the ATP Tour. Of course, I was over in Cleveland last week, got to watch Dom Stricker's run to his second ATP Challenger title in person. And let me tell you, boy, was the 19-year-old impressive. If you want to hear my final thoughts on his run, tune into yesterday's mini-break podcast. I was joined by Alex Banchilla, coach, 
tennis Twitter personality, friend of the program, to talk about that action, talk about some Rafa Nadal, Simona Halep things, as well as a very fun episode. But again, here we're focusing on the tour level action. And let's start with what was, in my opinion, my favorite thing I watched of all of the action that happened on the ATP Tour, and that was the Pune final uh, between Jao Sosa and Emil Roussevori. Ultimately, it was Sosa earning the title in Pune. He ends up taking a three-set victory, 7-6, 4-6, 6-1, to put himself back into the winner's circle. And I know I already mentioned this, but you look for Sosa. He's made 11 different ATP finals in his career. There was a gap, though, between April 2018. He makes the final in Esterol, knocks out Francis Tiafo, what was Tiafo's first final appearance, I believe, on the ATP Tour in his career, or maybe second after Delaware Beach. Point being, no, I think that was his first. Either way, Sosa wins that title. Doesn't make another final until this final here this past week. And you look for his pathway to get to the final. It was, you know, tough from the beginning. And, you know, he comes in, faces a wild card, and Arjun Kadhe ends up earning a three-set victory there. Three-set victory over number three seed Gianluca Madger in the second round quarterfinal. Straight sets over Daniel Altmaier. You look at his last two matches, though. Three sets over Elias Emer. That was a match that took three hours, 13 minutes. Now, three sets over Emil Roussevori, a match that took two hours, 43 minutes. Why do I bring this up? You look for Sosa, who from 2013 all the way through 2019 was playing exclusively tour-level matches, tour-level events, was consistently sustaining himself in the top 50, top 75, top 60 of the rankings, ultimately reached a career high of 28 uh, all the way back in 2016, and then he got injured in 2020 and you know things slowed down obviously pandemic hits in 2020 he goes one in nine that year overall but just you know not many able to play many uh, events not able to find any rhythm goes two and 14 in the tour level matches he played last season and you know as such made the decision at the end of the year to go play some challenger events and build back up his confidence and he succeeded in doing that you look for Sosa after the U.S. Open he goes and plays the moniker challenger where he makes quarterfinals there goes to BL uh, makes quarterfinals there. Then at the end of the season, Vienna semifinals goes to Brest, makes the final there before getting knocked out by Brandon Nakashima. Helsinki makes another final before getting knocked out by Alex Mulcan. Played a bunch of matches because he wanted to build up his confidence and succeeded in doing so. And now you look for him at the start of the season, you know, makes the final round of qualities in Australian Open, loses a three uh, a match there in that final round, but gets a lucky loser into the main draw, then goes and plays a challenger in the week in between and, you know, makes a quarterfinal in Quimper and then goes to Pune and ends up making this final here. And now you look for Jao Sosa. He's back inside the top 100, all the way up to number 86 in the rankings. There was a physicality that he played with all week long. I mean, his ability to find forehands, he's constantly inside out, inside out, you know, moving his feet around that ball in the ad side corner uh, of the court. And just again, his ability to find forehands, move that ball around the court, you know, attack with his inside in ball as well. The physicality he played with it disrupted, you know, it took away the weapons of Elias Emer. It took away the weapons and neutralized them of Emil Roussevori. And I do want to talk about Roussevori's performance because he was outstanding all week long. You look for Roussevori who, you know, knocks, you know, doesn't drop a set on his way to the final straight set win over Camille Maicek, 6-3-7-6 in that semifinal that I'll talk about in a second. But, you know, Roussevori was so disciplined 
from the baseline all week long. And just because it was a slower outdoor hardcore, he looked that much quicker on the court. It was that much more difficult to hurt him. But he's got that sort of FU firepower that he can swing through any court. And he's just going to create opening, opening, crease after crease until he attacks the open space and takes time away from you. And, you know, Sosa's so fit in his ability to track, you know, because Rusevori would try to go cross-court forehand, cross-court forehand to attack the Sosa for, uh, backhand. And yet somehow Joe Sosa ended up manage, managing to hit inside-out forehands from that ad side of the corner, would still manage to run around that ball, even if Rusevori had yanked him cross-court on the ball before. And just again, physically, Sosa extended every rally. And even when Rusevori would tee off on a forehand, Sosa would track down that extra ball and just force Rusevori to hit that extra winner, that extra shot in throughout the course of the rally. And you look for Sosa, that ultimately paid off in the end. And, you know, Rusevori, it's worth mentioning, he served for the first set up 5-3 and just plays a really – or up 5-4, excuse me, and just plays a very loose service game where, you know, just a, a couple of unforced errors on plus one balls and a double fault there on, on break point to gift that break back to Sosa. He blinked. And that one blink was the difference because him not taking that first set, he had to work so hard to win that second set. And credit to Rusevori, who you look at the stats in this match, played extraordinarily well. Made 71% of his first serves, won 76% of his first serve points, but was punished on second serves. 8 of 29, or 8 of 28, only won 29%, excuse me, of his second serve points because when Sosa, who was moving his feet so effectively and just the amount of little steps he would use to find forehands, he would tee off on forehand returns and just the depth he would generate and the heaviness of that ball, he would take control of those second serve, on his second serve return and was very disciplined in doing so. You know, I still think Rusevori had the biggest weapons. I think his serve, his forehand, the majority of you know, he was better on serve through the duration of this match for the first two sets because third set, Sosa gets an early break of Rusevori in a close, you know, close game and Rusevori had some chances to break back, unable to do so. And from there, it was just kind of, you know, Sosa ran away with it and you could tell Rusevori was spent with how physical those first two sets were. And that's a credit to Jao Sosa, who back into the winner's circle. Not much else to say. Just, again, how explosive his forehand looked. I don't remember it being that big. And, you know, I thought he got great depth on his backhand. I thought he did a pretty good job of, you know, in particular hitting that on-the-run backhand down the line passing shot. He sneaks it by you because you're not accustomed. You, you know, you think you get a ball to his backhand. He spent all match running around that backhand, you think, all right, there's no way he's going to, oh, did he just hit that backhand down the line passing shot by me? It's, you know, sneaky effective for Jao Sosa. And ultimately, that's what earns him the title. Now, I do want to talk about Rusevori for a second because I continue to be all in on the 22-year-old's bandwagon. Simply put, you watch him play. There's a, a, a level of pace he plays with that's just definitive front foot, I'm playing on my turn sort of tennis that not a lot of other players can hit that gear. And you just watch the momentum on his forehand when he leans into that ball, how heavy it is, the depth of it. It's very Yannick Sinner-esque. And, you know, I think Sinner's more fluid of an athlete than Rusevori is. I think Sinner's able to generate more topspin, more, you know, action on his backhand where a Rusevori backhand, there's more drive to it. Although I think the depth on the Rusevori backhand is fantastic. And I think he gets more comfortable turning into that ball cross court. He's always been comfortable taking it down the line. I think the big thing for Emil Rusevori, you look for him, he's not elite on hard courts yet, 
but he's getting closer and closer. And you look for him overall since the pandemic, you know, play resume post-pandemic or during the pandemic in August 2020. He's 35 and 32 overall. Uh, excuse me, 52 and 37 overall in matches played. 35 and 32 in ATP tour matches. He's 33 and 24 on hard courts. That's a 58% win percentage. Of course, you look for him in the last two weeks, tw- uh, 52 weeks, 26 and 17, 60% win percentage. Here's what I like for Rusevori. The holds percentage continues to improve. He's at 77.5% overall since the since the play resumed in August 20, but he's up to 80% over these last 52 weeks. The big number for me is the break percentage. He's breaking serve 26.8% of the time on hard courts. That's a top 10 number amongst top 50 players, and that's in tour-level matches. And it speaks to the fluidity of his of his ground strokes. It just speaks to how how you know concise his contact point is. And again, his ability to dictate from the ground. The ground strokes are not the issue for Emil Rusevori. There's some Taylor Fritz in him in that respect where it doesn't matter how hard you hit the ball. He can dish the ball back with just as much pace. The question has always been, does he have the physicality to hang with the best of the best? And I think when you look at that final match against Sosa, had he held serve, you know, he served for the first set, 5-3. I think if he holds in that first set, it's a completely different match because if you watch this final, the gear he hit in set number two, the level he was able to play, the discipline, he was willing to go that one extra ball, wasn't pulling the trigger as soon on that down-the-line forehand into the Sosa backhand corner until he knew he had Sosa dragged all the way out on the deuce side and knew for certainty that Sosa was going to have to hit some sort of backhand in response. The discipline Rusevori plays with, he has that aspect. That works at this level. The pace he plays with, he has that. We, whether you watched his first round match five sets against Felix or the semifinal he made and the match he played against Rafa, you know, the four and five loss in Melbourne the week before the Australian Open. He's had a fantastic start to his 2022 season. And now he's back inside the top 75 where he belongs, back up to number 71 in the ATP rankings, five off his career high of 66. He needed this sort of start. He needed this sort of uh, push to the start of his season because you look for him last year, you know, made a round of 16 in Miami Masters and then, you know, didn't have the best clay court season. So had he, you know, not earned some big results here to start this season, isn't able to follow up that result in Miami, he was in jeopardy of falling outside the top 100. That is no longer the case as he goes semifinal in Melbourne, now final here in Pune. If he gets into the main draw, he'll probably have to play qualifying in Indian Wells in Miami, but he should get into the main draw uh, through those qualifying matches, and you do not want to face him early in those events because I'm telling you, he's a top 50 guy on hard courts, and I think better than that moving forward as well. The physicality continues to improve. That match in the semifinals against Camille Mychek, who's playing some fantastic tennis, and you look for Camille Mychek, of course, the Polish player, I used to say Matrzak, he corrected me. We now know publicly it is Camille Mychek. You look for him to start his season again, goes 4-1, and one, right, or 3-0, and oh, excuse me, at the ATP Cup, wins a first-round match against Andreas Seppi uh, at the Australian Open as well. Now, semifinals here in Pune at the end of last season, he reaches a challenger final before making quarterfinals in Sofia. He's into the top 100, number 79 right now, which is a career high ranking for the 26 year old Mychak. Guess what? Career high, 26 years old. 
Crimes are later than they used to be. It's not like 22, 23, 24 years old. You have to be top 100 or you don't have it figured out. It took Camille Mychek a bit longer. You look for him in particular, that three-set win over Lorenzo Musetti in the quarterfinals. He has the physicality of a top 100 player. His ability to absorb, redirect, and generate pace on his backhand is a top 50 sort of backhand weapon. The drive he's able to produce him, the backhands he sneaks on the rise, up the line, just special little harder for him to generate pace on the forehand, has good pace on the first serve. The second serve, like anyone's second serve, can hang, although I do think because of his size, his second serve hangs a bit more. But man, am I impressed by Camille Mychek, and that was a hell of a win by Rusevori to beat him 3-6, and six, played the perfect tiebreaker, blanks him 7-0. Uh, that was really good tennis from Rusevori. It was a really fun event in Pune, and you got to give a shout-out to Elias Emer, who makes the first ATP semifinal of his career. Of course, both Emer brothers, Mikhail and Elias, make the semifinals this week, and now you look for Elias Emer, 25-year-old up to number 137 in the world with that result, and now, you know, again, should get into ATP 250 qualifying for a lot of different events, and we'll have some playing opportunities here. You know, going to get to choose his schedule. It it's going to be interesting what he chooses. Do I go play 250 qualities? Do I go play challenger events and really, you know, a couple of titles there? If I feel my level's good enough, I can make a top 100 push. Look what Greek Sport did. Look what Bonzi did last year. It's interesting. Interesting point for Elias Emer, who, I mean, his forehand's just a weapon. It's absolutely a weapon. His ability to move forward, his fluidity in the corners. Again, he's more aggressive than his brother, Mikhail, makes a few more unforced errors, certainly as well. But I was really impressed with Emer's game, who, again, first semifinal for him in a bunch of different chances. Those were your semifinalists over in Pune, of course, your quarterfinalists. I thought it was a good week for Musetti, who, you know, beats Vukic in three sets in his first round match as the number two seed. Vukic playing really, really well right now, the former Illini all American and you know for Musetti to lose in three mat sets in my check I'm recording this on Tuesday as you listeners know I know he earned a first round win in Rotterdam given his clay court success it would have made a lot of sense for Musetti to go play the South American clay court swing to avoid these hard court matches and just try to get some wins and keep his ranking in that top 80 top 75 range guarantee he's getting into qualities at masters events if not into main draws and no, he said, I need to work on the hard courts. I'm playing on the hard courts. And he gets a win there, gets a first round win in Rotterdam as well. Bold choice for a guy who, you know, 8-18 eight and 18 in his last 52 weeks of play, but it's the right choice. I, li- I like the aggression. I like the confidence. And I thought he's playing better, certainly. So that's a step in the right direction if you're Lorenzo Musetti. But that is your action in Pune. Let's move now to Montpellier. And I'm going to be a bit briefer, I think, with this one. Because it's, I mean, what is there to say? It's a couple familiar storylines. It's things we've talked about a bunch here. A, we haven't ever talked about a Sasha Bublik title run. Sasha Bublik earning his first ATP title in his fifth final as he knocks out Alexander Zverev, 6-4, 6-3, to win the title in Montpellier. You look for it, Bublik, what a week. 6-6 six and six over the aforementioned talent Greek Spore, who won a record 8 challenger titles last season and is 24th right now in tennis abstracts elo ratings you know he beats bautista Agut seven six in the third four and two over krajinovich then four and three over zverev he was broken once in his final two matches and you look for him overall on the week six times in five matches played broken six times in five matches played that usually gets the job done. And for Sasha Bublik, of course, that's where everything starts. And you look for Bublik here, you know, held serve 81.6% of the time last season. That feels low given the weapon that is his first serve because, you know, you look for him. He wins 77.1% of his first serve points last season, 76.1% the year before. 
That ranks in the top 10 amongst first serve win percentage of top 50 players. But he only wins 40, you know, 5.2% of his second serve points on average. And that's a bottom 25 number. And he only makes 57, uh, 58% of his first serves for his career. And that's a bottom 25 number. And so, yes, that first serve is a weapon. But the consistency of that first serve is what will dictate his results in any given week. And you look for him throughout the course of the week, makes 60% of his first serves against Greek Spore, 63 against Air Bear. 66 against RBA, 76 against Krajinovich, 60% against Zverev, but wins 86.2% of those first serve points. I mean, that first serve is where things start and they finish for Sasha Bublik. It sets up everything he wants to do because, you know, Bublik, 6'5". And it was actually fascinating that Zverev, I think, is a little bit taller than Sasha Bublik. But, you know, Bublik, 6'5", really fluid on that backhand wing. It's condensed. He can generate power down the line, cross court, can play slice, drop shots. Of course, the forehand, it's a little bit bigger backswing, a little bit more severe of a grip. So if you can, you know, get pace into that forehand wing, he'll you'll hit a short ball too. And he likes to play the slice on that shot. That's the side he likes to incorporate variety with. He anticipates really well as a mover, has a very powerful first step, is very lazy with his footwork, but naturally has the natural gifts to be a good mover. It's just a matter of how locked in is he on any given day, but he was locked in against Zverev. And you just look at the ace percentages for him throughout the week. I mean, he hit 10 plus aces, I believe, in every match that he played, except for maybe not against Air Bear. But yeah, you, you, he just wins free points and indoor hard courts. You look for him. That's where the majority of his biggest successes have been. Newport's a grass court event, but you have a big serve on grass. You have the feel. You know, he serves in volleys. His hands at the net, exceptional. Great first volley depth, comfortable hitting the overhead. There's a lot of things Sasha Bublik can do on a court. I've said it before. It's Nick Kyrgios with worse press. You look at where his finals have come. Newport, that's a fast surface. Chengdu, that's a fast surface. Antalya, fast surface. Singapore, fast surface indoors. Montpellier, fast surface indoors here. Yeah, that's where Sasha Bublik's best results are going to come. But there's a reason right now he's hit a new career high of number 31 in the ATP rankings. The 24-year-old now uh, 36 and 30 in his last 52 weeks. He's won 20 first-round matches in the 30 events he's played. Those sorts of things matter, particularly when you know you look for him at the Grand Slams last year. The only Grand Slam he lost first round in was at uh, was in Roland Garros, and he played Medvedev first round of that Grand Slam. And so you look for Bublik. I mean, yeah, he's had some big results over the last 52 weeks, particularly uh, when you look for him on hard courts, uh, for him to make Miami Masters quarterfinals last year and, you know, semifinals in North Sultan, finals in Singapore last year as well. And now the title here in Montpellier, that's a good run over these last 52 weeks. And yeah, Miami quarterfinal points is certainly a lot to defend, but when he's serving well, there's not a lot Bublik can't do. And look, he just took it to Zverev, who played far too passive of a match. And, you know, you look for Alex Zverev. He made 72% of his first serves in the match, won 63% of his first serve points, was 5 of 16 on second serve points won. And just, you know, from a court positioning perspective, was 12 feet behind the baseline on an indoor hard court and, you know, wasn't playing the aggressive tennis he had so played so well at in the rounds prior. And you look for Zverev, who, you know, beats Mackey 2-6, and six, Manorino 1-0, Emer 1-3 in a match where the scoreboard is far closer than the actual match was. Zverev blitzed them, whether it was on the serve, the physicality, there was nothing Emer could do to hurt him. Manorino just didn't have it. And you look for zero from a numbers perspective, he continues to get better every year. 86.1 hold percentage last season. That was the highest of his career. To start this season, small sample size, he's at 87.5. 
last year, 27.5% break percentage. That's 2.2% above his career average, second highest by 0.3%. You know, this year he's at 29% to start the year. Percentage-wise, it gets better, and yet it's the same things that plagues Zverev in the losses, the passivity, uh, you know, playing, waiting for Bublik to make errors. And if you give Bublik enough opportunities, he's a shot maker, and he was feeling confident and serving confidently. And, you know, again, the passivity that creeps into Zverev in those big moments continue to plague him. And, of course, there was the press, you know, Zverev saying, putting too much pressure on myself, wanting to be world number one. A lot of people pointed out, well, Zverev, you're the one who says it's me, it's Medvedev, it's Djokovic right now. Those are the three best players in the world. And, by the way, listeners, I'm well aware I have said that as well. I still do think when Alex Zverev plays his best tennis, go watch the year-end finals, go watch the first four sets of that Novak Djokovic semifinal last year at the U.S. Open. Go watch him beat Djokovic at the Olympics last year. The best version of Zverev is as good as anyone on the ATP Tour. And yes, go read Ben's piece. Racket Magazine, Slate.com. He faces serious allegations that remain unaddressed by the ATP Tour. And that's a significant issue that I should spend more time talking about. And I apologize that I don't. From a tennis perspective, the problem is you see the same issues for him match after match after match, and I can understand why people have written him off now. Now, I continue to – I won't because I see the ceiling, and I just think from a tennis perspective, if you're being objective, you have to admit his best tennis is as good as anyone else's. But in those biggest moments, he seems incapable of continuing to be incapable of consistently finding his best tennis, and this match was very indicative of that. So those are my thoughts on Zverev coming out of this Montpellier final. Again, credit to Bublik, who can really do anything on a tennis court and has a really fun skill set, but ultimately, uh, and ultimately captures his first ATP title. Now, credit to Mikhail Immer into an ATP semifinal. He continues to put up the big hard court results and just the fluidity. If you don't have a big weapon and Gasquet didn't have a big weapon in the quarterfinals and, you know, Monfils wasn't generating any sort of pace in the round of 16. If you don't have a big weapon, you're not going to beat Emer because he doesn't beat himself. And if you are tentative, he will eventually step up and rip a ball down the line when you're not expecting it. There's a lot of things Mikhail Emer can do on a court. I don't know what his plan A is. I don't know how he wins points easily for himself, but he's never, he's always going to compete well. He's always going to keep himself in the match and he'll find solutions throughout the course of it. Now, again, making things a little bit easier for himself, a little bit more juice on that first serve. That's the recipe to get him consistently into the top 50. But I mean, you look at his start to the season and you look at his hardcore results over the last couple of years, he's there from a physicality standpoint. He's there from a result standpoint. There's a reason Emer continues to inch closer and closer. And you look for him now, Mikhail Emer, up to number 75 in the rankings. That's eight off his career high of 67, which he reached last season. But that's my takeaways from Montpellier. Now, last but certainly not least, I want to talk about the action that happened in Cordoba. And of course, you look over in Argentina, you were uh, had a bunch of familiar faces to that South American clay court swing, whether it's challengers, whether it's ATP events, guys like Alejandro Tabilo, Albert Ramos Vinolas, Juan Ignacio Landero, Daniel Gayan, and you know, Sebastian Baez, Juan Pablo Fikovic, uh, you know, um, so many names. So it was a fantastic event for us hardcore tennis nerds, Pedro Martinez Portero, Thomas Martin Echeverry, everyone you were looking for. You got to see compete in this event. And, you know, it was interesting to see Alejandro Tabilo, the lefty, his serve and just, you know, his ability to take that ball early on the rise, the 
strength of his first step, his anticipation skills as well, because he doesn't strike me as the most fluid mover, and yet movement is not an issue for him. And he anticipates so well, and just with his size, his reach, his ability to track down the ball, and if he gets a his racket on the ball, his strength, he's got a curious sort of body, does Alejandro Tabilo, 6'4", 6'5", where if he gets his racket on the ball, he's going to generate depth. He's going to generate topspin. And, you know, he made his first ATP quarterfinal here in Cordoba. He also makes his first semifinal and his first final, and he beats Baez 1-6, and six, then beats Schwartzman 3-6. and six. And by the way, that's really good preparation, Baez for Schwartzman. Two guys who are going to take that ball early on the rise, try to move you around the court, don't ultimately have the biggest weapons, though, and so use their speed and their core positioning to try to beat you. But if you can generate depth and heavy topspin, get that ball big into their bodies, that can be an issue for them, just given their size. And that's exactly what Tabilo did. And then I really like his feel as well. Mixes in the drop shots, mixes in the slice, mixes in the down the lines, the heavy high topspin balls, just the off-speed stuff, the drive he has on his backhand. You look for Tabilo, 46 and 30 in his last 52 weeks, made a couple of challenger final runs. Uh, You look for him, I believe, yeah, made challenger title last season uh, in November, also made challenger finals in Lexington and Puerto Vallarta on the hard courts. I mean, now makes his first ATP final as well. And with the result up to number 112, of course, Tabilo qualified at the Australian Open. Lost first round to Carlos Alcaraz. You know, got a win at ATP Cup. Took a set off Philip Krajinovic there as well. He's playing some really, really good tennis. Best tennis of his career, I would say, is the 24-year-old. Thus, he is up to a new career high, number 112 in the rankings. And, you know, again... He's got the big game, the big lefty, to play on the fast courts, and we saw that in Australia. I actually think his game's going to translate to grass courts as well because he's comfortable playing serve and volley, but he also does have the heavy and high topspin forehand and the sort of funky grip that seems to be accentuated so well by a clay court. I'm all in on Tabilo. Like, boy, is that guy talented. Stock on the rise. I am buying Alejandro Tabilo. You should as well. I mean, in terms of Albert Ramos Vanoles, who earns a four six six three six four, the guy just is a survivor. And Ramos Vanoles is twenty six eight and twenty six over his last fifty two weeks. Of course, you look for him four and eleven on hard courts, twenty four and twelve on clays. Completely different player. One of probably four players in the world whose hold percentage is actually higher on clay courts than it is on the faster hard courts. Of course, his break percentage jumps by about eleven percent on the clay courts as well. Just moves the ball so well around the court and can hit the ball on a pinpoint and just can swing freely on that forehand on these clay courts and move so fluidly around the courts. He was fantastic. He earns another title for him on the clay courts. And you look for Albert Ramos Vanolas now overall in his career, I believe. Let's see. Overall, in terms of finals now, I believe, yeah, this is his yeah 10th final on clay, 11th final overall in his career, fourth title of his career, earned one in Estra last year now gets one in Cordoba here by the way four uh three finals for him in his last 52 weeks all on clay shout out to you Albert Ramos Vanoles who at age 34 years old now you know still number 32 in the rankings keeping up his ranking and obviously he takes that opportunity to go play the clay courts uh that decision pays off in terms of the other standout performers in Cordoba again I'm all in on the Tabilo bandwagon you know what you're getting in Ramos Vanoles Schwartzman looked fine just you know, there wasn't great depth on his ball, but I just don't think he was particularly comfortable yet on the surf. It just, you know, again, I thought Tabilo played him. Uh, it was more accredited to Tabilo making him uncomfortable, playing the heavy high tops and get, generating the depth and, you know, the sort of pace that can make Schwartzman uncomfortable. 
I would have liked to see that match three out of five because it felt like Schwartzman had started to figure out the riddle and started to read the serve and the game of Tabilo much better in set number two. Uh, but credited to Bilo more than anything Schwartzman did poorly, who got pushed against Daniel Galan in that quarterfinal match as well. And that was a physical three-set match. Credit to Galan. I thought he played well. I mean, Bias has got it. 4-6-6, 1-6-1 over Green. That was super impressive. And Christian Green, I mean, now he had to come here because he's got points to defend, folks. And if Green is losing first round in clay court matches, he will spiral out of the top 50. Although I promise you, he's going to bounce back next week. But that's what happened last week on the ATP Tour. Again, Pune champion, uh, ultimately Joe Sosa, first since 2018. Montpellier, it's Sasha Bublik, first of his career here. It's Albert ramos Vinolas first since Estoril last season. That was your action. That unfolded. Hopefully, you feel caught up. Of course, you can all catch the highlights on Tennis TV. As a member of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I will tell you, TC Plus, always helpful with the replays they have and catching up on all of the latest action happening on the ATP Tour. Uh, but of course, as always, this is uh, we will promise to keep you up to date here on the action happening this week. Of course, we've got national indoors at the collegiate level this weekend. I'm headed up to Madison. We're going to be covering the event exclusively on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel channel promise you if you enjoyed danielle collins run to the australian open you want to find the next danielle collins she's probably competing at the 2022 national indoor event uh it's going to be a two ten uh, it's going to be a two mini break podcast tuesday excuse me nate walworth going to join me later today to preview this week's atp and wta action as well we know the pro tour rocking and rolling you want to hear challenger tour coverage hop on over to our great shot podcast feed damian coost Jakob bobro they have you covered of course of course, all of that content available on our website, crackrackets.com. If you need the more immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, we are at crackrackets. You want to message me directly, I am at A.L. Gruskin. Like, rate, subscribe, review to this show, the Great Shot Podcast, Correct Interviews Podcast, and our YouTube channel. Of course, a shout out as always to super producer Daniel Wasta for the f- of an ending job he does day in, day out, making all of this content possible. Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point as well, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, for my fantastic super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break. And we'll talk to you all later today. Thanks, everyone.